Good afternoon, great to see you here at the EU's public meeting. Glad you could join us here as we look at this fantastic book in the Christian scriptures, this book of Exodus. Let me give you a, a little bit of word, a little word of wisdom, a little bit of advice if I may be so bold. If anyone ever starts a story with the phrase, you know, I've got a friend who you should always be very suspicious. Sometimes at ANCON, uh, this conference we have in the middle of the year, we have question times twice in the week at night and they're normally fantastic occasions. And there's always a little bit of frivolity, a little bit of mirth when someone sticks up their hand and says, I've got a friend who... Yeah, right, a friend. Yeah, we've all got one of those friends. Well, you should always be a little bit suspicious, I think, when people start a story with, I've got a friend. By the way, I've got a friend who has done some really stupid things. Let the listener understand. This friend is pretty stupid. This friend in uh, their HSC, second last HSC exam, decided why, I don't know, obviously he's just stupid. Uh, He decided in his second last exam to, instead of pulling out the chair at the exam table and sitting down, he decided, because he was trying to be, what, cool? I don't know. Swing his leg over the chair and sit down. (laughs) How stupid can you be? Why is that so stupid? Well, because when he did it, his pants split right up. (laughs) As he sat down. He sat down to do his second last HSC exam and went, great, I've got split trousers all the way up. I only have to wear these trousers once more in my life, one more exam, and I've now got to catch the train an hour home with split trousers all the way up. Pretty stupid guy, really. Uh, This guy, unfortunately, did many other stupid things in his life, uh, one of which was he liked this particular girl when he was uh, at uni and got invited to this girl's 21st, which was nice. But this guy is so stupid. He turned up to this girl, who he likes, her 21st, two and a half hours late. Now, I know, I, I mean, I've heard of you know, being fashionably late, but two and a half hours, I mean, that's after all the food, that's after all the speeches, that's when some people have gone home. He turned up. Now, remarkably, uh, they got together in the end and have been happily married, but that's got more to do with her grace than his stupidity. It's alright for me to call myself stupid, if you haven't picked it up, by the way. (laughs) It's alright for me to call myself stupid. And I said to my wife when I was thinking about um, this talk and I thought about this title for today's talk, and I said to her, oh, you know, I can't actually think of any stupid things that I've done. And she sort of looked at me (laughs) and she said, I will answer the question with relish. And after about 45 minutes I said, that's okay, you can stop now. But certainly help for the introduction to this talk. Um, it's not even okay for her to say that's stupid because I know that she says it in a great frame of love. It might be alright for a friend to say to me, you're stupid, if they were saying it in jest. But even then I wonder if sometimes underneath I'm sort of going, oh, like, really? That's a... But for me to look you in the eye and to say, you know what, you're stupid. That's pretty offensive, isn't it? To say you're utterly foolish, you're without any wisdom whatsoever, you're an idiot, basically. And to say it seriously, that's a pretty offensive thing, isn't it? 
So, when I was thinking about the title for today's talk, Are You Stupid Enough to Take on God? I must admit, I felt a degree of trepidation. So, I thought, do, do we as the EU want to put this on posters around the uni this week and say to the uni, Are you stupid enough to take on God? That's a pretty offensive sort of question, isn't it? The implication in the question is quite offensive. Do we want to say it? Dare we say it? I think we must actually say it. Not out of arrogance, not out of superiority, out of genuine concern. Are you stupid enough to take on God? That's what we're going to be thinking about today as we come to this next section of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapters 13 to 15. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that where we are in this fantastic book of Exodus is that we've been part of a showdown. A showdown between the Lord, the God of the Israelites, and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all of his gods. That's the great showdown. And it's had four phases. We've seen three of them so far. We had the sizing up your opponents, where the Lord made very clear who was going to be the victor in this showdown. We had the the Pharaoh going nine rounds with the Lord through the first nine plagues where the Lord made clear to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians who was the real God in this showdown, that it's him who is the Lord, the God of the Israelites. And then there was the third phase we saw last week, what I call the killer blow, the tenth plague, where the Lord passed through the land of Egypt, striking down the firstborn out of every Egyptian family, including even their animals, but passed over all the Israelite families, those who sacrificed the Passover lamb and who uh, put its blood on the doorframe. Now, you might think at the end of uh, that phase last week, if you were here, you'll know that what Pharaoh did when the Lord passed through Egypt on that Passover night, Pharaoh and the Egyptians drove the Israelites out of the country. They didn't want to see them anymore. And you might think, well, that's the end of that. After all, that was the issue, wasn't it, that sort of prompted the whole matter, the whole showdown, that Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites go to worship the Lord and now he's driving them out to do that very thing. So you think, great, the whole story's over. But it's not. There's a fourth phase to this showdown and that's what we come to today. Phase four, what I've called the unanimous decision. The unanimous decision. And I hope to make it clear to you why I've called it that as we proceed. If you've got your Bible there, it'd be great to open it up to the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible. We're looking at Exodus chapters 14 and 15 today. This final phase, the unanimous decision, has a couple of stages. The first thing we read in the beginning of chapter 14 is that the Lord has a plan for this final phase. So let's have a look at that there in verses 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pihahioth between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. The Lord has a plan. What's the heart of his plan? What's his big goal in this plan? 
to gain glory for himself. It says there in verse 4 and it's also repeated a bit later on in verses 17 and 18. The Lord's plan here is to gain glory for himself. That is to gain fame for himself, to, to gain renown amongst the Israelites, his own people, certainly amongst the Egyptians, those who are opposing him, but actually, as we saw last week, renowned through the whole world. Even today, as we read this story here, the Lord gains glory for himself as we learn of what he's done, learn of his deeds. That's the Lord's plan, to gain glory for himself. And it involves redirecting the Israelites. They've headed out on one particular path and now he says, no, now turn around and go over this way. Why? Because then Pharaoh will look at you and go, okay, they don't know what they're doing. Maybe the game's not over. And so then Pharaoh comes up with a plan. See it there in verses 5 to 8. 5 to 8. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Pharaoh has a plan. He's the economic pragmatist. He's just lost his nation's workforce. It was the Israelites who were doing all the, all the slave labour in the country. 600,000 men, we read last week, plus all their families. He's let them all go. This is an economic disaster. So he's headed back out to get them all back in. And he loads up his chariots, which are like the Sherman tanks of the ancient world. You've got your chariot, your horse, and you can bear down on top of somebody if they're just walking around, no matter what sort of weapon they've got, you're formidable. 600 of these chariots, and then all the other chariots, with officers all over them. They head out towards them. So the Lord has a plan, gain glory for himself. Pharaoh has a plan, get back the slave labour. And it leaves Israel, the nation of Israel, with a choice. <coughs> Start there in verse 9 of chapter 14. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, and they're they're like champions at sarcasm here, right? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They're pretty negative about their situation, I guess you'd have to say. And you think about everything that they've been through, right? They've been through all those plagues in Egypt. But actually, what do they actually have to do in those plagues? I guess not much, really. I mean, there'd been all those plagues, you know, the boils and the frogs and all those things. Israel hadn't actually had to do anything, have they, really? I mean, when it came to the final plague, the plague of the Passover, they'd sacrificed the lamb and they'd, they'd been obedient to the Lord, so that, that's fantastic. But it's only now that they've been chased out of the land, they're stuck between the sea and the desert and the army. Now they're worried. You've brought us out here to die. This is not looking good for us. So what does Moses say to them? 
What does Moses say to them? There in verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Now he doesn't mean motionless. He doesn't mean literally just stand still because he's about to give them an instruction to move. He means be at peace. Be calm. Don't fret about this. Why? Because the Lord is going to fight for you. So Israel has a choice. They're going to go back to Egypt or are they going to trust the Lord? Well, and then the Lord comes and the Lord fights for Israel. You see there, chapter 14, verses 15 through to 31. First of all, he gives them some instructions which I'll leave you to read in verses 15 to 18. He gives them some instructions about what's going to happen and then he introduces a delay. It's very strange. There in verse 19 to 20, Have a look there, verse 19 to 20. Then the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. So as they come out, they were led by this pillar of cloud and in the night time there had been fire in it and at this particular point the cloud moves from in front of them, moves back behind them so it separates Israelites from the army of the Egyptians. Why? Well, it's so that the Lord can make ready his victory. So he can win his victory, really. Because then you read what happens during that night. The cloud keeps them separated and what you see is a great wind blows. Moses holds up his staff. A wind blows and the sea parts. And then the Israelites are able to pass through. Pass through the sea. That's pretty weird. That's amazing. And the writer of this text, the one who's recorded the events for us, is trying to emphasise to us how amazing it is. Have a look there in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and it turned into dry land. If you haven't got it, he he says it again. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. It's astounding. Then what happens next? Well, Israel comes through. Then the Egyptians say, well, we're going after them. So they plough in and it seems to be that their wheels get stuck in the, in the seabed and the Lord throws them into confusion and then they realise what's going on. The Egyptians, verse 25, he made the wheels of their chariots come off so they had difficulty driving and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Not one of them. Egypt The forces of Egypt are utterly vanquished. You may um, 
You know, you know the word um, decimated? You know, we say, oh, our side was decimated. Technically, decimated means you lose 10% of your army, right? That's what it means. We use it colloquially to mean, you know, wow, we were sort of wiped out. There were only a few of us left. We were decimated. It wasn't decimated here in either sense of the word. It's not decimation here. It, they were utterly vanquished. It was death to all of them. Complete destruction of the forces. That's what the Lord worked. Well, that's the end of the showdown. A unanimous decision. Why is it a unanimous decision? Well, because in this act that God does, he makes it very, very clear to Israel who is the true God. So Israel agree, yes, the Lord is the true God. You can see it there in verse 31. When the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So the Israelites recognise the Lord is the true God. The Egyptians recognise the Lord is the true God. The Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. The Lord, they recognise who the true God is. And in fact, if you read on through the Old Testament, you'll see that other nations come to hear of this great deliverance. They know about the Lord. He's the God of the Israelites who wiped out the Egyptians, who parted the seas. It is a unanimous decision from all of God's creatures that the Lord is the true God as a result of this deliverance. Well, that's the end of the showdown. Two points of reflection today. Two points of reflection. First is this. The God of power delivers. The God of power delivers. This really was an astounding and astonishing deliverance of God's people. I mean, if you were there, stuck between, not a rock and a hard place, but stuck between the, you know, sort of the sea and the desert and the army, with nowhere to move, the Lord parts the sea and you walk through and drive out. It's just weird. It's just astounding, right? It's astounding. How did God's people respond to this fantastic demonstration of God's power? Well, we read it there in verse 31. When they saw the Lord's great power, the people feared the Lord, they put their trust in him, and then if you read on into chapter 15, they sing his praise. So, three responses. There's the response of a right fear of the Lord, the response of faith, put your trust in him, and there's this song of praise, of singing. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking at a church in Sydney and I was speaking about the great vision in Revelation where there's all of God's people gathered around the great throne singing God's praises for all eternity. And a guy spoke to me afterwards and said, frankly, as a bloke, the thought of spending eternity singing is not doing anything for me. I'm not that, I'm not that inspired or encouraged or excited actually at all. And oh, fair enough, a fair comment I guess. Though I was reflecting on it later and I thought, you know, I, I think there's a fair bit of just cultural baggage there that we're carrying, don't you think? I mean, other cultures seem very happy with singing. It's just probably more, more our issue, maybe, as Australians. But then I thought, actually, I've been in big crowds, even of blokes, uh, who've really enjoyed singing. I mean, ever been to a sporting fixture where, you know, the Australian team wins and so we all, you know, spontaneously launch into the Australian National Anthem. You know, we'll sing Matilda. We'll just sing it at the top of our voices because it just captures that joy that we have at that moment. 
There, see, there's some truths, there's some experiences that can only be expressed with a song. And when the Israelites are delivered in this astounding way, what do they do? They can't help but sing. And so, chapter 15, that's what they do. Moses and the Israelites, they sing this song to the Lord and it's a song about God's great power that he's worked. Have a look there in um, verse 3 of chapter 15. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he's hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. And the song then goes on in the second half to talk of great confidence that if God's done this great deliverance, then he certainly will keep all his other promises to us to bring us to the promised land, to bring us into his presence. So that's the way the song goes. It's interesting when you think about this great deliverance, this threefold response, right, of fear and of faith and of praise, that's echoed not just at that moment that they were delivered, but those, that threefold response are echoed for many, 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 many years to come. The God's people, the Israelites, look back to that exodus and as a result of they say, because of that, we must fear the Lord. Because of that, we must have great faith in him. Because of that, we'll, we'll praise his name. So I'll just throw at you some references that you can look up later for yourself. You might like to jot them down. Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 10, verse 20 to 22, looks back to the Exodus deliverance and it says, keep on fearing the Lord. And, you, and you, how do you show right fear of God? By being obedient to him. I'll give you another reference, Deuteronomy 7 verse 18, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 7:18. It says, just like God delivered us from the Egyptians just then, whatever enemies we're facing now, we can have confidence that God will deliver us now. We should have trust, we should have faith in God. The way, because he delivered us then, he'll deliver us now. And the praise as well, praise is there right through the scriptures and I'm going to get you to help me with this one. So this is a bit different. I know public meeting, you sort of like to come and sit and have a bit of a snooze. So I've, week 12, I'm now going to get you to actually to do something. It's alright, don't be too frightened, it's alright. Turn with me to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. Pretty much the middle of your Bible. Pretty much. Psalm 136. Psalms are, many of them are great songs of praise and here's one of them. What we're going to do is we're going to read the first 15 verses and you're going to help me. The way we're going to read is I'll read the first part of each verse and then you'll respond with the last part of each verse which you'll notice is pretty similar. (laughs) Right? And uh, because I'm reading from the NIV and maybe you've got something different we'll, we'll go with the NIV. It says, the end of each verse says His love endures forever. Okay, his love endures forever. So I'll read the first bit, you respond with the second bit. Now if you're just sort of not following, don't have a Bible, I'm going to conduct as well. Someone told me yesterday I should conduct as well. You might laugh at it, I'm trying to be helpful. That's alright. I don't mind making myself a fool if it's in your service. Um, ready? Here we go. Friends, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. 
Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. To him who alone does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. Who made the great lights. The sun to govern the day. The moon and stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. And on it goes. Did you get the point of the psalm? You think you might have got it? You might be an engineer. It's a bit tricky dealing with literature. But I can say it. I was an engineer. It's alright. Don't worry. Electrical engineering, that was me. Now, you got the point, right, of the psalm. Now, you might say, well, Rowan, you got to have the interesting bit. It was different each verse. May I say, you got to have the important bit, actually. You got to have the really important bit. His love, in Hebrew, hesed, his steadfast covenant love, his faithfulness to his promises, his great love for his people, it endures forever. And it's seen in his great acts of creation. And guess what? Many years later they say, it was seen in that great deliverance at the Exodus. That's how come we know what God is like because of that deliverance. It characterises who God is. He saves people out of his great love. The God of power delivers his people. That's who God is. Because of his steadfast mercy, because of his covenant faithfulness, because of his great power, he rescues his people. And so his people respond with right fear of him, with trusting faith with joyful praise. That's the first point of reflection. Second point of reflection today from this Exodus account is the God of power judges. The God of power doesn't just deliver, he also judges. Throughout these events in Exodus from chapter 6 through to chapter 15, there's been a bit of a recurring theme which you might have picked up but you may not have. We're often told that or the Lord says, I'm going to redeem or deliver my people with mighty acts of judgement, is the phrase. I'm going to redeem my people with mighty acts of judgement. Deliverance and judgement are two sides of the one coin. He delivers with mighty acts of judgement. Uh, There's a couple of times it's mentioned there. You can jot them down, check them out later. Chapter 6, verse 6. Over 6, verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 4. Chapter 12, verse 12. And I think it's reflected in the song that we just read. Chapter chapter 15, verse 7. When you think about this story, what did the Israelites see in the dawn? What did they see? We read there in verse 30. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians 
lying dead on the shore. That's what they saw. God's great power seen in his terrible judgement of the Egyptian army. It really was a terrifying, a crushing condemnation of those who opposed the Lord. That is the outcome for those who oppose God, for those who take on God. Destruction. That's the outcome. If you're brave enough, self-assured enough, foolish enough, stupid enough to take on God, the outcome is destruction and death. Now it's interesting to note, when you, when we, we should remember in this story, God has shown great patience with the Egyptians. He told us that. I could have wiped you out, Pharaoh, for all of what you've done, all of your sort of unrighteous opposition of me, but he showed great patience to Pharaoh. So there was great patience in this story. There was even mercy too, wasn't there? Because there was opportunity, we saw last week, for those who weren't Israelites, they could join God's people and celebrate the Passover and be saved from that killer blow of the tenth plague. There was patience, there was mercy, but in the end, for those who are resolutely rebellious, the end, whenever it comes, is without exception. It's destruction. You can see then why, from a biblical standpoint, it really is stupid to take on God. Because God judges those who oppose him. It's foolishness in the extreme because you, you are assured of the outcome. You may not know when, but it will happen. You might say, well, this all seems a bit unfair, actually, in this Exodus account. I mean, how come the Israelites, I mean, they're not great. I mean, how come they get to sort of escape, but the Egyptians are all wiped out to a person? Well, I want to point out to you here that nationality is actually not the key issue in this story. It may seem, on its first reading, you know, a bit racially discriminatory, but it's not. Nationality is not the issue. I can demonstrate this to you by just, if we fast forward in the story a little bit. A bit later on, we actually read that the Egyptians are shown mercy. Notice the whole Egyptian nation weren't worshipping the Lord, but they're not all wiped out. The army is wiped out. There's even, even more mercy and more time given to the rest of the nation. They might recognise that the Lord is the true God. And a bit later on in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Deuteronomy 23, 7-8, the Egyptians are shown mercy. And the Israelites don't get away with it either. If you fast forward a little bit, it's actually not a terribly long distance from the edge of Egypt through to the edge of the Promised Land. It actually doesn't take that long to get there, even walking. But how long did it take the Israelites to get into the Promised Land? 40 years. It's not that far 40 years to get there. Why? Well, they actually got there quite quickly. I mean, they go to Mount Sinai and then they get to the edge of the Promised Land and the Lord gives them instructions. Right, this is what you're to do. In we go and we'll take possession of this land. I'll fight for you. And they send in some spies to check it out and the spies come back and go, there's some really big and scary people in there and they're more powerful than us. 
and we don't want to go. They refuse. Only two come back saying, Caleb and Joshua, say, yep, we can do it with the Lord. So the Israelites refuse to go in. And what does the Lord say? He judges. He says, you will all die now in the desert. Everyone over the age of 20, everyone who has some responsibility for this decision that's been made, you will all die in the desert except for Joshua and Caleb. That's why they're 40 years in the desert. Because that's the period of God's judgement upon them. See, it's not about nationality, is it? In the end, it's about faith. Do you trust the Lord? And that faith is always shown in obedience. Who are you going to listen to in the end? It's about faith. Not about what passport you carry. Well, what about us today? What about us today? We've sort of come to the end of this phase. We've been looking at this showdown. There's one more week to look at next week, which is the journey from the edge of... From the, from the Red Sea through to Mount Sinai where some sort of really interesting things happen. You might like to read ahead on that for next week. Um, we come to the end of the showdown. What do we make of all this? What I want to do is I want to reflect with you on a particular part of the Bible that I call a bit of a black hole. Uh, a black hole not because... Um, a black hole in our understanding, if you like. There's many parts of the Bible that we're not terribly familiar with, to our shame, I guess. And I want to take us to one of these sort of black holes in our knowledge. It's not a black hole, of course, in the wisdom of God because, you know, he put it there for us for our edification and for our learning. So I'm hoping that you might turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 15 and 16. The book of Revelation, you say, well, that's not a black hole. I know a fair bit about the book of Revelation. Well, that's excellent and maybe you do too. In my experience, a lot of churches, we deal with chapters 1 through 7. That's sort of all right and we sort of deal with that every couple of years. And we like chapters... You know, the last couple of chapters because, you know, that's sort of new creation and that's, that's good. We go there often. But there's this bit in the middle from about chapter 8 through to about chapter 19 which we really don't ever touch very much and it's pretty full-on and weird. So, I want to go to this particular part of this black hole as we sort of wrap this up and reflect on the great deliverance and the great judgement still to come. You know the book of Revelation is this vision that Lord Jesus gives to John the Apostle, right? Of the things that have happened, the things that are happening and the things that will happen. He doesn't necessarily give them in chronological order too. They're all sort of mixed up together often and he sort of tells the whole story a number of times. What we have here is a vision of the things that are going to be happening in the future. The reason I'm coming to this particular part, why is this linked into Exodus, is because this vision that Jesus gives John the Apostle the pictures in this vision are lifted out of the Exodus, the stuff we've been reading about this week and the last couple of weeks. So the vision comes with all these images of the Exodus and that means that we're meant to sort of understand that this is like the Exodus but on, on steroids, you know, like but huge. So as we read through the first bit of chapter 15, just, just mentally note, oh yeah, that's, I, I can see where that links into the Exodus. That's, I've heard that before, yeah just as we go through the first bit of chapter 15. So John writes for us, I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. There we're starting, right? Plagues. We had plenty of plagues in Egypt. 
last plagues because with them God's wrath is completed. So we know we're looking here at the very final judgement. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea those who'd been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and they sang. What song did they sing? They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. They're singing Exodus 15. Well, sort of um, re-released if you like. Re-released and remixed with the song of the Lamb thrown in. Who's the Lamb? The Lamb is, is Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. What's that saying? It's saying there's a great connection, as we saw last week, between the deliverance of the Exodus and the greater deliverance, the greater salvation work through Jesus Christ. And so they sing this remixed song here in verse 3 and onwards. Again, a lot of common themes from what we've already seen in Exodus. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It talks about God as the, the one who is just, who does justice, that people will fear the Lord, that it's about bringing glory to God's name from all the different nations. And then notice what happens next, verse 5. After this I looked and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes round their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Here's this picture of God's people who've been delivered standing beside a sea and then plagues being poured out of God's wrath. And I'm not going to read through chapter 16 as all the plagues come out, as they're poured out, but a lot of them will be familiar to you. The first plague is a plague of boils on all those who opposed God, just like the plagues back in Egypt. The next two plagues are about blood and death, again, tying back to the Exodus. The fourth one is worth having a look at, verse 8 of chapter 16. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues but they refused to repent and glorify him. Here is this terrible picture of the final judgement, right? The one that's coming at the very end of the ages on all those who oppose God and I don't know what, how, what you've imagined that day might be like, terrible to contemplate. But the picture we have here is that those who've lived their whole life taking on God, refusing to submit to him, refusing to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, his disciple, those who've lived their whole life shaking the fist of God, on that final day, even as the very wrath of God is poured out on them, they will curse God's name, knowing that he's in control, 
and they will refuse to repent. They will, ignore, they, will be, well, they will know that God is God. They will know that Jesus is Lord and be, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow but it won't be happily as in life shaking the fist at God even in the very experience of the final judgement. People are not going to suddenly change at that last moment and go, oh, I wish I'd become a Christian. When you've lived your whole life in opposition to God refusing to submit to him you're not going to change your mind even on that final day and on it goes then after the sun then there's a a plague of darkness which again is familiar to us then the, the water is dried up there's frogs what do we make of all this? why is this terrible picture of this final deliverance and final judgment here in the Bible? three reasons It's there, first of all, to comfort. To comfort God's people. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound very comforting. It just sounds rather terrifying and awful. Well, that's true, but there is comfort here for God's people. Let me say why. There's comfort because this is the assurance from God in these chapters that a final deliverance from all the evils of this world really will come. If you're a person who's put your trust in the Lord Jesus, you finally will be saved. This final deliverance will come and you can be sure that justice finally will be done. All the evil of which we suffer as victims, all the evil that other people suffer as victims, there will be an accounting. And that is a good thing, isn't it? There's comfort here. There will be final deliverance for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. There will be final justice. But also it's obviously a terrible warning for those who are taking on God. Now I want to be fair here to say those who are stupid enough to take on God, some people take on God without realising it. Maybe many, many people do that. They don't realise that refusing to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ means that actually you're taking on the one true God and that this is the outcome. So maybe they're in ignorance. Just thinking about that, say for a moment we conduct a little thought experiment. Say I uh, whip out here from behind the, the desk here my personal time machine, which I've just been building in my spare time. And I give you my personal time machine and uh, for some reason it looks like a Mars bar, I don't know why, Um, and I I give you uh, this time machine and I say, you can go back in my time machine to that very moment of the Exodus, I can transport you into Pharaoh's chariot at the front of the army as he's heading out towards the Israelites. I can do it. And what's more, it's got a special force field so that, you know, no one can hurt you. Okay, right? And so I can... Mind you, you'd just be pretty terrified if you turn up with a Mars bar and go, gee. <laughs> anyway, we, we whiz you back. We whiz you back and just, you know the outcome, right? You know the outcome. There's Pharaoh in his chariot with all his army. He's heading towards the Israelites. But you know what's going to happen. The Lord's going to delay. They're going to get through. And all of these people, they're real people. It's like you and me. They're real people. They're going to die. 
I can send you back. Would you say anything? Would you want to say anything? Knowing the certain outcome. Now, obviously, I don't have such a fantastic Mars bar. But the Lord's told us what's going to happen, hasn't he? How many people, how many millions are heading towards certain destruction? And we're too frightened to tell them. See, the thing about judgment is you can only talk about judgment with tears. You can only talk about this coming judgment with tears and anguish, knowing what's coming. There's comfort here. There's a terrible warning here. And there is also a call here. There's a call here to God's people to persevere, to persevere in faith, to persevere with right fear of the Lord, to persevere in praise of his glorious name. That's why this passage is there in the scriptures, I think, for us. Well, friends, we've come to the end of the showdown. My fear is that there are many, many people who knowingly or not are stupid enough to take on God. Two-thirds of the world, two-thirds of the current world's populations are not followers of the Lord Jesus. That's worth praying about, isn't it? Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the reminder today of the great deliverance but also the great judgement to come. We know that you are a God of great power and yet we know you are also a God of mercy and forgiveness and kindness and grace. So we pray, Father, you might have mercy on many, that you might save people so that they might not be lost and suffer the wrath they deserve. Lord, we know we deserve it too. So we praise you for your grace. And pray, Father, you might make us bold to bring glory to your name and declare your praises, not just amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, but amongst all the nations of the earth, so that they might know your great salvation that you've worked for us in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, you would save them, that they might not be lost, and that they might join us in those songs of praise. In Jesus' name. Amen.